If you're here for the first time at Reality, welcome. So blessed that you're here. We're sojourning with Jesus and the disciples through the Gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. We're going to have it on the screen. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. There you go. God's Word says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us so much that you are willing to even discipline us. Lord, we, we agree that no discipline seems uh, joyful, but rather sorrowful. But those that are trained in it, Lord, yield uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, God. And we thank you for your church. And you're very zealous for your church because she is your bride. And Lord, you desire that we would be holy. So Holy Spirit, would you take this word and would you speak life into each heart? Lord, help me to get out of the way and you would speak directly, Lord. That Jesus, you would be high and lifted up and exalted. That you would be seen in all your glory and beauty this morning. And we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this message is the discipline of the Christian. The discipline of the Christian. We're going to consider three points this morning. Number one, the purpose of discipline. Then we're going to have an illustration of discipline. And then number three, the application of discipline. The context of Matthew 18 is the childlikeness of the believer. And we've been sojourning with Jesus and the disciples And really for five chapters, from chapter 14 through 19, Jesus is really dedicating all his energy into these 12 men. He's he's discipling them through the teaching of God's Word. We find ourselves in the city of Capernaum, possibly in the home of uh, Peter. Peter had a little townhouse there in Capernaum. And we could see Jesus there with a child on his lap, as he's teaching his disciples. If you, if you don't become like a child, you can't enter in to the kingdom of heaven. We come in the kingdom humble and dependent, without accomplishment nor achievement. Now that we're in the kingdom, we remain as children. We learned last week that we're to be cared for as children, protected as children, and this week, how we need to be disciplined like children. Children need to be disciplined. 
When they do what is wrong, they need to be confronted, corrected, and then restored. And God uses His Word in our lives to achieve that goal. It says in 2 Timothy that the Word of God is profitable for reproof and for correction. The Word of God cuts, purges, cleanses, and washes. And God uses His Word, the spoken Word, through the agency of the Holy Spirit applied to our hearts to purify and to, and to sanctify us. Now, this truth always has to be couched in love. That's what Paul said to the Ephesian church. Speaking the truth in love. And this obviously is exemplified in Christ. I think of that quaint little episode in Mark about the rich young ruler, remember? He came up, he was so excited here to meet Jesus, and he knelt down showing great humility and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus said, well, he said a lot of things, but he said, why do you call me good? But they said, well, you know the commandments. Oh, slam dunk. I've been doing that since birth. And then it says in Mark that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. So all that you, sell all that you have and then go and follow me. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of property. He was very wealthy and affluent. And he left Jesus sad. So the beauty here is Jesus loved him in spite of the fact that he had an idol in his life. Love without truth is hypocrisy. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love rejoices in the truth. Love flourishes, right, thrives upon the foundation of truth. If we can't be honest with one another, we do not truly love. But the opposite is true as well. Truth without love is brutality. Jesus doesn't beat us over the head with our sin. He woos us unto himself. He invites us to come as we are, but to come, right? So the purpose of discipline is not punitive, but rather restorative. This is our Lord's priority concerning the church, that the church would deal with sin, the sin within its members. His purpose in disciplining us is to restore us, just like we as parents, the purpose of disciplining our children is to see them restored as well. God disciplines us because he loves us. All legitimate sons and daughters are disciplined. It says here that he, in Hebrews 12, that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. That's a big priority with God. And then, he, and then the author of Hebrews makes a statement, you know, all discipline doesn't, isn't a matter of joy, Right? It's not a joyful experience, but rather sorrowful. But for those that are trained in discipline, it bears fruit, right? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So that's why the Lord disciplines us. That's why the Lord has to discipline us. And that's what we're going to discuss this morning. The purpose of discipline, which we may refer to as church discipline, is not to throw people out of the church, Rather to keep people in the church, but to keep them pure in the church. 
Paul says that, to put, that we're to put out the leaven. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, it says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. So now we get to our text in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What sin? What sin is he talking about? To what degree? Well, it doesn't tell us what sin. It doesn't tell us to what degree. Because any sin to any degree is a defilement. All sin is sinful. But it seems here in this passage that Jesus is talking about sins that affect or impact others. John Calvin said that every sin is mortal, but no sin can destroy the grace of God. Now, with this said, now we can all probably testify we've been sinned against at least once in our life, right? I think that's the the lot of, of each one of us. But it's not like we're going to start a campaign, right, to search out sin. <laughs> we're not called to be sin sniffers, right? On the contrary, we should be willing to forgive one another. So the fact that a brother sins against us doesn't mean we've, oh, okay, I've got to call the, the church. We've got to, you know, rectify the situation. I mean, hopefully we, we've been, we understand how God has shown us grace, Right? And if someone sins against us, well, we're called to forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven us, we're called to forgive them. But there are times when a sin is unrepentant. And it could be a serious sin. The Bible commands us to confront that person. Because we love him and we want to be honest with him. In the beginning, all sin was a capital crime. Remember in Genesis chapter 2? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Deuteronomy 13, it says, If your brother entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, you shall kill him. Standard was pretty high in the Old Testament, wasn't it? But God's grace is seen even from the beginning. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's not the threat of judgment. It's God's wooing and kindness and grace and mercy that draws us to repent. And the fact of the matter is, even though Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they did not die physically in that moment. Although they did die spiritually, there was a separation. So even in church discipline, there's abundant grace. But our text says, if your brother sins against you, go and reprove him in private. Don't talk about it to other people, which probably is our tendency, right? We can be very clever as Christians. Oh, I'm just going to call up the prayer chain and ask someone to pray for this person, you know, because they did this horrific thing. That's not edifying. That's gossip. The Bible says, if someone sins against you, sins against me, we're to go in private. No one needs to know about it. 
dare I say, not even your spouse. Go and tell him his fault. This word tell, this verb means to expose to the light, to bring to the light. Go and confront and make it clear and help him or her to see that it is sin. What is sin, by the way? Well, the Greek word means literally to miss the mark, to miss the bullseye, to miss the mark. Who's, who hasn't missed the mark? And what is the mark? Well, Jesus tells us in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Woo! We've all missed the mark, haven't we? We've all fallen short. And you might say something like this, hey, uh, dear friend, do I have this right? Am I understanding your actions correctly? Maybe we need to clarify. Maybe it isn't a sin. Maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe it's just an annoyance, you know. And again, I confess this morning, and as, as, uh, as a church, we, we have Thursday mornings, we, we brainstorm the sermons. All those that are part of the, the teaching team come together and we talk about the, the message for that particular Sunday. And the fact that Jesus is ambiguous makes this difficult. It'd be awesome if there was a list of ten sins. Avoid these and you're good. <laughs> no such luck. We're called to be righteous. We're called to be holy before the Lord. And this sermon is for me and it's for everyone here. God is calling us to examine our own hearts. So we give the benefit of the doubt. We assume the best of our brother or sister, you know. But there are times when there is a sin. There's a, a legitimate issue here. But even in that, we show great grace. Do I have this right? Am I understanding your actions correctly? And it says in verse 15, if he listens to you, which would mean, yeah, you know what? I understand that. I regret that. Yeah, I need to repent. Please forgive me. It says you have gained your brother. And this word gained, this uh, adjective gained is extraordinary. It means literally to accumulate wealth. To win your brother, your, your, to gain your brothers, to accumulate wealth. So the context is this. It has the idea of a sinning brother being considered as a loss to the fellowship when, they, when they're in sin. They're a loss. But once restored, he is considered a gain. It is like wealth regained. It's a beautiful concept, isn't it? This strained individual is so valuable that you go and endeavor to get him back. And if he won't come back, you take two or three to try to get him back. It's because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verification of any fact called for two or three confirming witnesses. They're in Deuteronomy. Now, if he still won't come back, you tell the whole church to go after him because he has that much value. This is spiritual wealth regained. And you do it collectively with the hope that he will listen or she will listen, and you will gain your brother or gain your sister. You go to that extreme. Now what if they don't even listen to the two or three witnesses? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This would include church leadership. Then it is communicated to the whole church that such and such a person is unwilling to repent. But the church could say, we have approached him with two or three, and he won't repent. He won't hear. We have pursued him. That's how valuable this person is. 
let's say you're in a calm group and there's an individual living in unrepentant sin. Well, God would be calling you to gently confront that person. And if that person refuses to listen to you, you would take two or three others. Hopefully, it would be awesome from that same community group, right? Because there would be accountability there that are privy to the situation that would go and confront that, that brother. But let's say the individual still refuses to listen. It's at that moment that the group involves church leadership. So it's not like a brother sins against you and you immediately go to the church. It's not that at all. 90% of these issues are probably going to be resolved just in private. That's the power. That's the power of God's Word. God's faithful. But there are going to be instances, and we've experienced it, where you have to take two or three witnesses and including we've had to have gone to the church. Now, what happens if this individual doesn't even listen to church leadership on a matter? Verse 17, Let them be to you as a Gentile, an outcast, and a tax gatherer. Who wrote this gospel? Levi, Matthew. And what was his uh, job? He was a tax gatherer. So the unrepentant sinner, unwilling to repent, unwilling to listen, even to the church, were to consider them as a Gentile, a non-Jew, an outcast, a tax gatherer, the most despised in Jewish society. Those Jews were considered as sellouts, these tax gatherers, right? They sold their souls to to Rome to extort money from their own people, right? For a pagan, idolatrous nation, Rome. And they were considered as traitors. And Jesus is saying, not Matthew, Jesus is saying, treat them like total outcasts, total unbelievers, if they won't come back. And you thought you were coming here this morning for a feel-good message. Well, it is feel-good. It is feel-good because it's the grace and mercy of God, really. But what does that even mean? That means you don't accept them into the fellowship because sin will leaven the church. Jesus is so zealous for his bride, for his church. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't negotiate with that leaven. You have to extract it. You have to remove it. Now, we call this excommunication. What's excommunication? This means that they are not welcome into the fellowship of believers, nor welcome to partake in the Lord's table. It means that as Christians, notice this, it means that we as Christians, we still love them, not as a brother, but the way Jesus loves sinners. Jesus laid down his life for them, but they are not welcome in the fellowship of believers. But our prayer, of course, is that excommunication would lead to repentance. But what about outside the church? What should our interaction be with with someone who's been excommunicated? In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Not even to break bread 
with such a one. And you are to do it, and we are to do it in a spirit of gentleness. It should never be harsh. It should always be bathed in compassion, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and mercy, because you understand their frailty, which is our frailty. It's our universal experience. If you and the church are not willing to confront someone's sin, then you don't see them as having any value. Christ sees them as having value. He paid the ultimate price for them. Every time someone drifts into sin, they are disciplined for the purpose of restoration because they are so priceless. You feel the way about your children, and the Lord is saying that's how you deal and should feel about the children of God. Let's consider Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Restore them because they have value. Remember last week we talked about the bruised reed, the cracked reed, right? Jesus doesn't break. That smoldering wick, he doesn't snuff out. On the contrary, he restores and rebuilds that reed, that broken cracked reed. He takes the smoldering wick and he fans it back into flame. That's what we're seeing here. The verb restore means to repair. It's actually a medical term used of resetting fractures or mending bones, putting dislocated limbs back into place, which can be painful. This is a call for all Christians, not just church leadership. And the reason is, is because love covers a multitude of sins. We seek to see them restored because they have so much value. That's the goal of discipline, to see a person as a treasure, to see people the way God sees them as the good shepherd. Remember that beautiful parable we discussed last week in Matthew 18. The willingness on the part of the good shepherd to leave the 99. And go after that one strange sheep. He leaves the the fold, the 99 there on the mountains, and goes after that one strange sheep. And remember, we, we discussed how the good shepherd knows one is missing, not because he's counted, not because there's been a head count, but because he knows each sheep intimately. Every little idiosyncrasy, every little quirk, the good shepherd knows us, right? And he knows when we're missing, and he goes after us. And that's why he leaves the sheep, right? So we've been entrusted with this ministry of recovery. The Bible calls this the ministry of reconciliation. We're following the pattern of God, which is a pattern of restoration. And he's using us in the church as a means to do this. The second point here, let's consider an illustration of discipline. Does this even work? Well, we have an illustration in the New Testament that talks about the church applying discipline against one of its members. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. 
For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here in the church at Corinth, there was a man who was having sexual relations with his father's wife, probably his stepmother, a form of incest and the act of adultery, which is abominable to God. And instead of being brokenhearted, the church, over this sin, the people were actually proud of it. And Paul says, you're arrogant and you haven't mourned. Instead of being sad, you're glad. It's because the church had twisted scripture. They were boasting in their inclusiveness. They were definitely PC. And they were declaring, let us sin that grace may abound. A couple of things about this episode here. The immorality here was not a one-night stand followed by broken-hearted repentance, which would have resulted in a very different response from Paul. The verse says, someone has, present tense, his father's wife, not had. So it was an ongoing affair. There's no repentance here, no fleeing from this immorality. So Paul says in verse 4, next time you come together in your assembly, deliver such a one unto Satan. Put him out for the destruction of the flesh. Paul's intention here is to emphasize something that we see in Job chapter 2, verse 6. Remember that episode when the Lord said to Satan, Behold, I hand him, Job, over to you. Only spare his life. Satan becomes and became the means that God used to purify Job's heart and bring him even closer to God. This is not the only place where God allows Satan, allows Satan to do this, using even Satan to accomplish his greater purpose. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul describes his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan, which God uses and appoints for Paul's humility and Christ's exaltation. Consider verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul did it also in the church of Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he says, I have handed over Hymenius and Alexander to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. These two were promoting a false doctrine. In fact, it says in another portion of Scripture, it was like a gangrene that was affecting the church. So Paul was counseling young Timothy as he was the lead pastor there. I've already handed them over to Satan. You need to, you know, remove them immediately from fellowship because they're blaspheming. They're undoing the work of God. So we put them out because they might have to go down even further 
God will have to break them, no doubt, so that they truly repent, that their flesh be destroyed, that they come to their senses in sincere brokenness. So Paul's aim here, and our aim has to be the same in handing someone over to Satan, is that some horrific misery will come in such a way that the person will say with Job, my eyes have seen the Lord, and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The story in Corinth actually ends well. The immoral man was indeed handed over to Satan. He was removed from the fellowship of believers, but he did repent. Remember we said that the purpose of excommunication is repentance. And even when they're removed, that's not the end. We're still praying, we're still believing God to touch their hearts, to bring them back. And Paul exhorts the church in Corinth to receive them back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Again, the one and then the two or three witnesses and then the church. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. So the church at Corinth, after being so liberal and rejoicing the fact that they were so inclusive, finally did remove him. But once he did repent and showed evidence of that repentance, they were reluctant to receive him back. So Paul had to exhort them, oh yeah, by the way, he's restored now. He's repented. You need to receive him back into the uh, fellowship of believers. He can take communion now. Now, the apostle Paul confronted Peter when he sinned. Peter sinned in removing himself from the local church in Antioch in order to identify with some Judaizers. Peter himself fell into legalism, right? Because it was a matter of food and diet and all this. So Peter removed himself from the Gentile believers there in Antioch. And in Galatians 2.11, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. you got to love Paul. No fear. Even if it's the rock man, he's in sin. <laughs> i got to confront him. Now, did that end the relationship between Peter and Paul? No, it did not. Second Peter 3.14 says, uh, Peter writes, And regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as our beloved Paul wrote to you. Paul was Peter's beloved brother because all that Paul ever had in mind in confronting Peter was restoration. So it works. God honors this procedure. God honors his word when we implement it. And the last point we want to discuss this morning is the application of discipline. Going back to Matthew 18, starting in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst them. Remember when we discussed in, in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the question of his, of his disciples, who do men say that the son, of the, uh, the son of man is, right? And some said Elijah, and some said one of the prophets, and some said John the Baptist. And then Jesus, you know, 
directed that question to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? And remember, it was Peter that spoke up. Well, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus congratulated him because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. That's right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you are Peter, and upon this rock, this Petra, right, this, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, right? And I say to you, Peter, here are the keys. Remember, at that moment, Jesus gave to Peter the keys to loose and to bind. And those keys were given not just to Peter, but to all believers, right? So what, and I had mentioned, because I actually had the privilege of giving that teaching a couple months ago on Matthew 16. I mentioned that we were going to talk about this later. Well, now is the later. (laughs) The loosing and the binding. What is that all about? If someone repented, their sin was loosed. And if someone refused to repent, they were bound in their sin. And it's not that any man has the ability to forgive or to loose or to bind. But as children of God and the authority of God's word, we do have the authority to declare God's word in respect to a person's repentance or non-repentance. So when we confront a sinner and a sinner will not repent and we say, you're bound in your sin... Heaven has already made that judgment. Or when we confront a sinner and the sinner does repent, we say you're loosed from your sin because we have the authority of God's word that says that if you repent, you will be loosed from your sin. Then when, you, then when we say that you're loosed from your sin, we're only saying on earth what heaven has already declared. The Pharisees asked Jesus... Uh, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's true. Only God can forgive sins. But we, as we share the gospel, or even in this context of church discipline, we can declare your sins have been loose. Your sins, you have been bound in your sins. If they've shown repentance or if they've shown unrepentance. The bottom line principle is this. When we deal with sin and confront sin and call people to repentance and hold them responsible for the lack of repentance and then rejoice with them once they do repent, we are simply doing on earth what has already been done in heaven. This is an example of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven has already rendered the verdict that someone's bound in sin or that someone's loosed from sin. We are just reflecting heaven when we do the same. Verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This is, this scripture has been misinterpreted by so many. Again, what's the context? church discipline. This isn't a blank check, right? Two of you agree on anything, right? It shall be done by my fathers in heaven. No. 
If two or, you, two or three of you agree, as in loosing and binding, as in church discipline, as confronting a strayed sheep, a strayed brother or sister, it shall be done by my Father who is in heaven. Again, when two or three come together and affirm someone's repentance and heaven is in agreement, we can ask the Lord to cleanse them and restore them, and He will. And if they will not repent and heaven affirms that, we can ask the Lord to chasten and discipline them, and He will. The verb to agree is very interesting. It's where we get our word symphony. Symphony. It's a harmony of people coming together, right? in agreement in the Lord's name. In other words, we're doing heaven's work. We're doing the Father's work. We're doing Jesus' work. And then Jesus himself has the final word in verse 20. Where two or three have gathered together, Jesus declared, there am I amongst them. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be amongst them. We usually quote this verse regarding a prayer meeting or a worship service, right? The fact that we're not alone, that we're actually accompanied by one or two or three, we find comfort in that. Okay, definitely the Lord's here, right? Because two or three of us are gathered together, meaning the Lord's going to show up. He's going to do something extraordinary because there's more than two here. What about this? What happens if you're by yourself? Is the Lord not there? Again, the context is not a prayer meeting. It's not a worship service. It's church discipline. Church discipline. So about two or three witnesses gathered together in the process of implementing and confronting a brother, implementing church discipline. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at the same time. But it's in church discipline that he is very present in a special way. Now, I understand. We're feely touchy. When we have two or three and we're praying, we're encouraged by that. That's not to diminish that in any way. But I think it behooves us to understand the context of that verse. Where two or three are gathered in my name for the purpose of church discipline, there I will be in a manifest way. I will be amongst them, in in the midst of them. That's why this is so dear and close to the heart of God. Never is the church more in tune with heaven, more in tune with the Father, more in tune with Christ himself, than when we call a sinner to repentance in order for them to be reconciled with the Father. It's for the sake of the purity of the church and the glory of Christ. This is the Father's work. This is the Son's work. This is the Spirit's work. Let's close with a couple questions. Is there unrepentant sin in your heart, in my heart, and life right now? Cry out to God for mercy and ask Him for forgiveness. The second question, is there a Christian you know that is living in unrepentant sin? Would God be calling you to confront them? Take time to pray for them right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we see in this important passage of Scripture your zealousness and your love 
for your bride, the church. The, Lord, the, the, the fact of the matter is, Lord, is that no sin is too small. All sin impacts, all sin defiles. But there are some sins that require confrontation. And we confess, Lord, this is very difficult. And in and of ourselves, we can't do this. And of course, Lord, we have to examine our own hearts. If we're doing the same thing, how could we possibly confront a brother that's doing that sin? Lord, first of all, would you examine our hearts, Holy Spirit? Would you search our hearts, know our hearts, know our anxious thoughts? See if there be any offensive, hurtful way in our own heart and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we thank you for this word. This is a good word because any true, valid, legitimate relationship requires honesty. And if there's no honesty, there cannot be any love. True love requires truth. In fact, love flourishes in the truth. Lord, help us to see that and embrace that. And give us wisdom in these things, God. Help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the carpets. We encourage you to come forward, celebrate communion, being reminded of Christ's infinite sacrifice on the cross, willing to shed his blood to cleanse us from our sins, willing to be broken to make us whole. We have the prayer team. If there's any issues, maybe an issue that needs to be confronted. Maybe just to pray about that. So, Lord bless you.